Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. You're looking live right there at Trump Tower, where the former president will be spending the night. Tomorrow, Donald Trump will appear before the Manhattan Criminal Court for his arraignment. Trump is the only former president in American history to face criminal charges. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg has been investigating Trump's alleged role in paying hush money to adult film star Stormy Daniels. A Trump aide tells CNN that Trump has been meeting with lawyers and political advisors tonight, one of whom describes him as, quote, defiant and focused. We'll tell you what we've learned will happen tomorrow. Plus, Senator John Fetterman opening up about his downward spiral that landed him in Walter Reed Medical Center for six weeks being treated for depression. We'll discuss why inpatient treatment was necessary for him. And Mike Rowe is here to talk about why a college degree may not be the best route to success for our kids and what jobs he says are needed over the next decade. But let's begin with what we know about Donald Trump's arraignment tomorrow. My panel is standing by. We have the world's best law enforcement analyst, John Miller, our old friend, Anthony Scaramucci, the former Trump White House communications director who lasted for 11 days (laughs) or one whole Scaramucci. Also, the man who somehow knows every lawyer involved in this case, Ellie Honig, and the smartest woman on earth, okay, person on earth, S.E. Cup. But first, we've got CNN's Jason Carroll, who is live for us at Trump Tower. Jason, uh, good evening. Tell us how the NYPD is preparing for this unprecedented event. Unprecedented indeed. First and foremost, the former president spending the night here at Trump Tower, where he, where we have seen him so many times in the past. A lot of questions about what will happen in terms of security out here tomorrow. Right now, I can tell you a lot of steel barricades out here on Fifth Avenue, the same steel barricades that we've seen downtown at the courthouse. The NYPD has made it very clear, Allison, that there there has been no specific or credible threats. But the NYPD, as you can imagine, is prepared just in case. And by preparedness, we mean that mobile units are on the standby if necessary. They are prepared to set up roadblocks if that ends up being something that they need. They have a complement of transit officers at the ready if that should be something that should be needed as well. When the president leaves Trump Tower here tomorrow and makes his way down to the courthouse, he'll be part of that motorcade. The Secret Service will be there with him. But once again, you've got the mayor, you've got the police commissioner saying that this is something that they have been prepared for. And when you think of the NYPD, think of it in this way. This is a department that is really the standard bearer when it comes to security here in the United States. They are accustomed to security challenges. They are accustomed to working in tandem with the Secret Service. So once again, no specific or credible threats. The NYPD says they are ready. Okay, Jason, thank you very much. Stand by if you would. 
Uh, John Miller is here to take us through how this is all going to go tomorrow, starting with the motorcade to the courthouse. John, do we know what time this is happening or are they not telling us for a reason? No, we know. We're not broadcasting it uh, just for security purposes. But somewhere in the afternoon, uh, Donald Trump is going to leave Trump Tower and take a specific predetermined route to the district attorney's office where he's going to surrender on this indictment and be arrested. So four miles, basically, that's the route that they'll be taking, four miles, and that is, they'll have to clear traffic? I mean, how's that going to work? So that's the, that's the straight line as the crow flies. Uh, the route's a little different. We're not showing the route again for security reasons. Um, but it's going to be an 11-car motorcade, uh, highway patrol lead, highway patrol tail, but mostly Secret Service um, cars and staff cars um, from Trump's team in the motorcade, and it'll take him into the, the DA's entrance. Um, and then once he's in the courthouse, tell us what happens. So then he gets booked upstairs in the DA's office, um, fingerprinted. His prints get sent to Albany, enshrined in black and white. He gets a NICID number, which shows he's got an arrest record. And then he is, once all that's completed and the paperwork is done, he's taken to a courtroom on the 15th floor where a judge is waiting to arraign him. And that's where he gets to enter a plea, presumably not guilty, where his lawyers have to um, say, you know, we have the indictment now, we can see what the charges are, we're going to reserve our right to file motions. He'll be released on his own recognizance, and then it's straight back to Mar-a-Lago. But for a minute, he'll be in this hallway where cameras are allowed, and we've right. seen this hallway before. This is a familiar hallway this is a familiar and hallway. a familiar walk. But this, I mean, we saw this with... Uh, Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon. And uh, the CFO of Trump uh, organization, uh, Weisselberg, Alan Weisselberg. Alan yes. Weisselberg. And, you know, they're both handcuffed and they're both in custody. Donald Trump will not be in handcuffs. Uh, he's going to be with a DA's investigator who's basically the arresting officer. Um, but the Secret Service detail said as long as we have him under our protection, we'd rather not have him handcuffed in case we have to move him quickly or some threat emerges. Makes total sense. Thank you very much for all of that information. Let's go back to Jason. So, Jason, also Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene says she'll be protesting in New York mm-hmm. tomorrow. Is that relevant for police? Well, absolutely. I mean, this is something that uh, police will be police will be keeping an eye on that protest expected to happen downtown at the courthouse. Uh, Again, in terms of protesters, though, we haven't seen any large scale protests since all of this indictment has has been going on, has been going, uh, has been happening. even just being out here, Allison, we've seen a couple of people come by every now and then, some shouting in support of the president, some shouting, uh, you know, against the president. But uh, in terms of that protest tomorrow, the mayor has spoken about this, as well as the police chief, the mayor, making it very clear that when Marjorie Taylor uh, Greene comes here tomorrow, that she, quote, had best be on her best behavior, also saying that New York is not a place for anyone's misplaced anger. But as I've said before, when it comes to protests, New York City, no stranger to protests, whether they be large or small, NYPD saying that they are prepared for this. Allison. Jason, thank you very much. Now let's bring in my panel. Um, let's start with Anthony Scaramucci. Anthony, great to see you. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you. Hopefully I'll last longer than 11 days. <laughs> One Scaramucci, as That's we call good. it. Yeah. Um, no, great to have you. Yeah. So as someone who did work for Donald Trump. Yeah, who also um, campaigned for him. We, okay, so you know him. What are you expecting for tomorrow? Well, I think he's probably through the shock of it, and I think he's a good showman, and so he'll put on a good show tomorrow. He'll be defiant, like his lawyers are saying, but he'll be polite He'll be courteous to law enforcement. Remember, they're a good part of his base. And I think he will be fairly muted. 
I, I don't think this is a happy day for Mr. Trump. It's not a happy day for America. Uh, and so the stuff about it making him stronger, it's obvious that the polls have gone up a little bit. Uh, and perhaps it's making him stronger in the short term. But I don't think it's a great set of facts for him. Hmm. No matter how this permutational outcome happens, it's not a great set of facts to be arrested and have an arrest record and all that other stuff. When you say, I'm just curious, Anthony, when you say he'll put on a good show, for for whom? Where will that show take place? Because if we're not getting cameras on him in the courtroom and, you know, is the show, it'll where's be the show? The, well, it'll be for the people that he's in contact with. And I think at and Mar-a-Lago, he is scheduled to fly back yeah, and forth. He'll, he'll make, okay. he'll make remarks. He'll, you know, tomorrow's a big day for... President Trump. Yeah. He has to, if he if he's going to run a great campaign going forward, he has to get the messaging right here. Um, he's got to not be overly emotional. He's got to contain some of the impetuosity in his personality. Well, that's not this possible. Will, you know that. Uh, well, I think it is possible. I think to part contain of the, his impetuosity. I do. I think part of the impetuosity is contrived by him. And so I think he recognizes the moment and he's a very good showman. And I do believe he comes tomorrow in a very serious mode playing a certain role. It'll I didn't be, even know impetuosity was a word. <laughs> Let's just start there. That I'm is pretty so, sure, I, I'm pretty sure you, I didn't George W. Bush do on that. I'm pretty, <laughs> right. I'm pretty sure that's a legitimate ahead, There is something about court, criminal court that, that can be that is humbling for a person. And I've seen plenty of people with... For a regular person. For, well, for anybody. I mean, I've seen, I've seen people who are powerful in their own right. Powerful politicians, financiers, mob bosses, drug traffickers, powerful people in their own worlds. When you come into court... That bluster falls away. I mean, it, there, there's a leveling effect to sitting at that defendant's table. Do you agree with that, John? I do. I've seen the same thing many times. Um, and, uh, I mean, it depends who he's trying to play. I mean, really interesting today when they said, you know, we all applied to have cameras in the courtroom because it can fit about 70 people and there's millions of people who want to see this. There's high public interest. And uh, Trump's lawyers said, well, it could contribute to a circus-like atmosphere, which is... You know, maybe not Donald Trump's first experience with a circus, but as Ellie says, this is not a circus where he's the ringmaster. This is where the judge is in charge and where, you know, justice is, is going to be done. And I think he'd rather be on home turf at Mar-a-Lago than, um, than putting on a show in court. To be clear, I'm not vouching for what he does after court. <laughs> I'm just saying, in court, don't expect any dramatic shows. This just feels to me like the four years of the Trump administration when everyone wondered, oh, he's going to pivot now, he's going to pivot now, he's going to pivot now. He does not change. I know this is unprecedented. I think he's going to use this politically and do what he does. I mean, we won't get to see his real demeanor as he's getting booked we don't know what's happening in his mind, if he's scared, you know, or not. Um, but I just don't expect we're going to see suddenly some new Trump that is no, no, taking this a, seriously. No, no, I don't no, think he's a, taking this not seriously. A, not a new Trump, but he's a great showman. And so he's right now manifesting in his mind how he's going to act tomorrow. And I think there's three things going on. Just me personally. Yeah. Know him re- I used to know him reasonably well. Uh-huh. Number one, he's going to be very kind to the law enforcement that's booking him, 100%. He views them as his base, and he'll go out of his way to be kind to them. Number you, two— You know what he said, though, about the cops at the Capitol, right? I do know what he said about okay. the cops at the Capitol, but I also know that he, he went to the precincts here uh, 
you know, during election day to visit some of the police officers, and he views them as his base. The New York City Police Department, I think one of the precincts or somebody endorsed them in New York. And when he's uh, one-on-one with somebody, he's very different. When he's one-on-one, he's very very polite. And um, Oh, you act like I've never been around him one-on-one. I have. (laughs) Tell us more. Tell us more about that. You don't want to know. I just, I can't can't believe that there's like uh, a Trump Trump for, you know, this real... Okay, so on the 75th anniversary of D-Day, he gave a good speech, whether you like it or not, he gave a good speech. Uh, when he had to apologize to the American people after the incident in the bus back in uh, the, the 2016 the, the, campaign. Um, grab him by the... Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. He, he, he apologized. You go look at that. It's a three or four minute speech. It was very serious. What are we doing he, right now? What, what are we doing right now? We're talking uh, about the times I'm, that Trump I'm, I'm has acted like out, a normal person. I'm pointing out he has the capacity to do that. I'm not here to defend Donald Trump. I'm here to explain the situation sure. and give you my best surmise but, but Essie, what's the, how what's he's going to act. Side? I mean, I, I agree yeah. with, with um, Anthony that in the small um, snippets yeah. that we see of him, we're surrounded by the detail and everything. Yeah. When, how could he act out? What are you expecting otherwise? Oh, well, I don't know, but I certainly know what Trump is capable of. We've seen it. This is someone who's called for violence against this DA. I mean, I, I just so think, think it's weird that we're putting him in this. call for violence against the DA? In front no, of I don't. Church. No, I don't. And in fact, we won't really know. But I just think it's weird that we're painting him as someone who's going to be real sober tomorrow and real nice and here all the times he's been real nice and normal. That's crazy to me because we've seen how impetuous and uh, irresponsible well, he has many, been in the worst again, of circumstances. You, you can like it or dislike it. There are many facets to the guy's personality. His personality is literally like a kaleidoscope. And okay. so, let, let me just, so he'll, 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 he'll do, okay, well, let's see if I'm right. You'll have to invite all, me back, okay? And I think, I no, think we won't know how he's going to be. Well, you'll hear from people that are yeah. in the courtroom, I mean, this right? is going to come gonna in be two parts, which is how does he conduct himself in the courtroom? And then the second no. part is going to be, you know, and here's a guy who's very indignant about a case where he feels, yeah, I was shaken yeah, down by true. two people who asked for money and signed agreements to keep it secret. Then they turned on me, and now I'm in court after they broke the deal, and he's going to be indignant. Well, when, I mean, sure. that, well, when he gets back to Mar-a-Lago, John, he'll be a different Right, that's a different thing. Mar-a-Lago is Yeah, when he gets back to Mar-a-Lago, he's Very quickly, Ali, we have to go, but quickly. You can't charm or politic your way out of a criminal case. Exactly. This is a different... It, this is a different arena altogether. That's really a great context. Okay, everybody, stick around if you would. We want to talk about Donald Trump's legal team. Wait until you see the history that these guys have with each other and the incredibly tangled web of lawyers. A shakeup on the Trump legal team today as the former president prepares for his arraignment tomorrow. Trump has hired Todd Blanche to be his lead counsel as he plans his defense against these charges. All of this just adds to the complicated web of lawyers surrounding Donald Trump. And tonight, his legal team is promising to challenge every potential issue once the indictment is unsealed. My panel is back with me. Okay, Ellie, this is an attorney, Todd Blanche, whom you describe as excellent. You worked with him, I think, for quite a while at the SDNY. Yes, six, seven years. Okay. We overlapped. Um, So explain this. Why would someone... Mm-hmm. With an excellent attorney with sterling credentials, 
I, no, I'm oh, serious. Oh, you're thinking from the lawyer's point yeah. of view. Yes. From the, from <laughs> I thought you were going to ask why would Trump no, hire someone because he's a really good lawyer. I why Donald Trump would hire him. But, but given that many of Donald Trump's lawyers end up yeah. in jail or subpoenaed <laughs> or deposed, why would he take this job? I would, I would surmise, I'm guessing here, that Todd Blanche thinks he can do this job while staying out of trouble. Maybe he's different from everybody else. Maybe he's not. It's a high-profile case, and lawyers do generally have to understand and accept the principle that you take whatever representation is out there. Not, you, not that you take everyone, but you're not tarred with the sins of your client, right? You're doing your job to represent people, whether whatever they're accused of. There's a certain nobility in that. And I know people don't like to associate that, but we extol public defenders. They they defend people who are accused of heinous acts, and they're doing their job, and it's and part of the system. And everyone deserves a lawyer. Yeah. And you, of course. Uh, exactly. Elliot, I have a question. Yeah. If President Trump does not go to jail, let's say he has a plea or right. something happens or whatever, but it's a success. Or found not guilty. Found not guilty. That's a, that's a, to, to is that not a big things. win for his... It's a, it's a career-defining laurel if you beat right. this case as Todd Blanche. I will say this. Todd Blanche is very different. It, think what mm. comes to mind when I say Trump attorney. Like, just think of the kind Chuck of... Pino. Okay. <laughs> I was going to go Sidney Powell. So, so, okay. so let me say... Well, let's because, go Sidney, Sidney Powell. Only too, because too, Michael too. Avenatti wasn't available, right? <laughs> that's, that right. Yeah. that's right. But, but is a good example. Joe, Joe Tacopino is also a very experienced He's a good courtroom guy, lawyer here in Manhattan. They both have a lot of experience. They're complete opposites, personality-wise. Todd Blanche is soft-spoken. He, he is not a podium pounder. Right, someone who will stand there and wag a finger in the jury's face. He is, uh, he is deliberate. He is careful. Uh, he's thoughtful. Not to say Joe Tacopina is not those things, but demeanor-wise, and so you won't see Todd Blanche, I don't think, on TV. Let's he, put it that way. He quit his job. Yes, at a big take firm. This case. So he had to firm. quit. He couldn't just say Could put not. this on ice for a while. I I don't know. I don't know if this is temporary yeah, I've, I've or not. I've been there where I've quit my job for Mr. Trump. And, okay. so, and so, and how does that work out? Well, it didn't work out well for me, but it might work out for this lawyer. It's hard, hard to know. But what happens to you is you get sucked into the moment and then your ego, you get this little bit of an ego infection. Mm. You're like, OK, I'm going to be defending the former president of the United States, the first president in history to be indicted. Yeah. And if I can exonerate him or somehow make this go away for him, I think it's a big deal. And he I think literally it's, said I think this it's into- was... I think it's intoxicating. He, he literally said this was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. That's right. I, I, but it, you but definitely it could, he had but to he leave doesn't want to. Molitor, Wickersham, and Taft, you know, a white shoe law firm. Very, very lucrative job. And I'm, I'm curious why he had to leave the firm to take this case. It, it, well, may, be, it may be that the firm didn't want the representation. It may be that the firm had conflicts of interest and he couldn't have taken the representation at the firm. It may be, candidly... Donald Trump is not popular here in Manhattan. You'll be shocked to know. I think the I think the vote count in 2020 was 85 percent for Joe Biden here in Manhattan. And so there may have been some reluctance to take on the representation. John, explain the tangled web that we're talking about, about how many <laughs> of Donald Trump's lawyers know each other, have represented each other, have fired each other, have sued. Like, I think we have a graphic. Let me pull this up for everybody of the flow. OK, basically what we needed, we don't have it at the moment, but we will. We we needed a flow chart of who, how they all know each other. So the, there's a lot of crossover. Um, and, you know, it starts with Joe Tacopina, who is Donald Trump's lead counsel right now, although that's now in debate since Todd yeah. Lance just said he's coming on as lead counsel. So there's two lead counsels, which in a discussion about tensions between lawyers is demonstrative in and of itself. Um, but Takapina once represented uh, Bernard Carrick, the former police commissioner of New York, who then sued Takapina in a case that was later dismissed um, for going behind his back and secretly meeting with the U.S. attorney, where Commissioner Carrick 
who ended up going to jail for four years, said he gave information about me, his own client. Then Carrick hired Tim Parlator to sue Takapina and complain to the Bar Association, but Parlator is now Trump's lawyer in the classified documents case. And then, um, and then who's next? Lanny Davis. That? Oh, is it Bernie? Oh, you were Lanny Davis. Oh, so Lanny then, Davis. It's, like, it's right. like the grown-up Brady Bunch without <laughs> women. Yeah, yeah, Lanny Davis. So then Lanny Davis was, was uh, representing Takapina in that case against Carrick and Parlator. Of course, Lanny Davis now denies he was Takapina's lawyer, but he is quoted in multiple newspaper articles as... Speaking as, for Takapina. As Takapina's lawyer, Lanny Davis. So maybe it's a different Lanny Davis. You know, I mean, it's not that common a name. Um, and, then, and then it goes on to Michael Cohen, who was a former Trump lawyer, who's now the chief accuser, who's now represented by Lanny Davis. So if you wonder how there's tension within the Trump lawyer circle... Stop wondering. What a tangled web. That was well done, John. Thank you very much. All right, everybody, stand by, because we need to talk about this. Senator John Fetterman is out of the hospital, and he's opening up about his depression. That candid conversation and our own candid conversation about how all this will play out with voters is next. Okay, we're just getting this news into our newsroom. The Manhattan judge for Donald Trump's arraignment tomorrow will allow five news outlets, pool photographers, to take still photos, but networks will not be allowed to broadcast video of Donald Trump's arraignment. So again, you will see still photos tomorrow of the proceedings, but you will not see video inside that courtroom. Okay, now let's turn to Senator John Fetterman, who is speaking about his battle with depression, which led to his hospitalization at Walter Reed for more than a month. It's like you just won the biggest you know, race in, in the country. And the whole thing about depression is, is that objectively you may have won, but de- depression can absolutely convince you that you actually lost. And that's exactly what happened. And that was the start of, a, of a, down, a downward spiral. I had stopped leaving my bed. I've stopped eating, uh, dropping uh, weight. I stopped engaging some of the most things that I love in my life. Let's discuss with former Congressman Mondaire Jones. Anthony Scaramucci is back. Dr. Debbie uh, Nampia-Parampel. You got it. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> of the NYU School of Medicine. Essie Cup is back with me. Um, so I thought this was such... A, an informative, actually, interview that he did and gave because people were wondering why he was hospitalized inpatient. And he clarified that there was no, um, basically, he wasn't a suicide risk, he was saying, but you heard him there talk about how he had given up kind of the will to live and wasn't eating. And he let me ha- let me just play it in his own words about how he felt that he didn't care if he lived or died. I was at a, a Democratic retreat and many of my colleagues were coming up to me and asking, why aren't you eating? Did you care if you were there or anywhere or nowhere? I, I just showed up where my uh, staff said. Robotic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As it was described to me. You were agnostic about the question of living or not at that time. 
Yeah, well, I, I never had any self-harm, but I was indifferent, though. If the, the doctor said, gee, you have 18 months to, li- to live, I'd be like, meh. Uh, okay, well, that's, that's how things go. So, Dr. Debbie, is that why he was um, sent for inpatient treatment? Yeah, I think so. So, um, so, so it's, it might be semantics. There's something called active suicidal ideation. That's where you're actively coming up with a plan to kill yourself. But then there's passive suicidal ideation, which this might actually fall into that category where you're sort of indifferent whether you die or not. Uh, so if someone is trying to harm you, you might not actually defend yourself. Because you have to think about it, you know, it's, it's very competitive to get a hospital bed, right? If you go to the emergency room, you could be really ill and people will send you home anyway, maybe with nursing, you know, maybe with equipment. Same thing if you have a major surgery. So to actually get a hospital bed, you have to be pretty sick and in a really dangerous situation because you're competing <clears throat> with everybody else. So he had to be in a dangerous situation. And usually it's because you're in danger, you know, either to yourself or you're posing a danger to others. So in this case, it's that he's in danger. Uh, and then to stay hospitalized for approximately six weeks, that danger had to persist. So this is actually a treatment refractory depression in some sense. It wasn't something where they could start a medication and say, okay, everything looks good. The plan looks set. He can be set up to follow up with outpatient psychiatrists. It looked like it was pretty intense. And he already had some structural changes in the brain from his stroke. So it's probably a major obstacle. Essie, your thoughts? Well, you know, having struggled with my own mental health and talked about it, I just want to say how brave this was for him to talk about so honestly and emotionally, especially, this might sound weird, as a big, tough guy. Um, You know, there are barriers to getting mental health and stigmas attached, and those barriers are greater in communities of color, and they're greater for men. And so what he did was really, really important. Um, look, depression's a liar, so is anxiety, and it convinces you of things that are not true, that you're, you're not okay, you're not doing well, you're not as good as you should be, et cetera. And I know from my own experience, the way he's feeling about his mental health today will evolve. He might not realize how dire a situation it was until he unpacks that over time, because as you say, doctor, you can't just go somewhere for six weeks if you're okay. He used a term that I've never heard before. He said, I'm happy to say my depression is in remission. I have never heard, somebody, you, you tend to think, oh, well, I've, I've been cured, my depression is better. But he said, my depression is in remission, which I just thought was an interesting term. Um, Anthony, how do you think this plays for his career? How do you think this means, what this I, means for his voters? I think he's a hero on a number of different levels, but the main level for me is that this is an illness. And so let's say he broke his back and was in the hospital for six weeks, everybody would be like, okay, that's fine. But he had something wrong with his brain that needed to be fixed. And I think we have to drop the stigma in our society of that. And so I not only applaud him, I hope that is a beacon. It's literally like a lighthouse to other people that may be feeling that way. Please come in. There's therapies that we can have designed uh, to treat you and to help you get to a place where you feel good about yourself and your family. He's obviously a loving, very good person. He's an American patriot. And I think what he did speaks volumes to his leadership skills. So I think he's a hero. That's not what you're hearing on right wing. Uh, well, TV, I think I think that's you. a mistake by them. They should be reaching out to him in a public health message to all people 
And that's a problem with the tribalism in our politics yeah. right now. We should be transcending that yeah. and talking about this for what it really is, which is a public health and safety message. Congressman, I mean, they're talking about it as though he's such a liability to Democrats. He's such a liability to the Senate. Um, how do you think it will go when he goes back to Congress? Either, I mean, that's not beanbag, as they say. These are the same people who say that mass shootings are a direct result of the mental health crisis in America and that we need to invest in creating more mental health supports. So just goes to show you how genuine they are about that. Um, you know, as someone whose election meant everything to him, to, to, to Congress, it is really, I think, an important perspective to hear this guy who just won, as he said it, the, the biggest Senate race in the country, the, the biggest race in the country, the, the, the race, that, frankly, that gave Democrats that, that extra seat to give them more comfort in the Senate, say that it wasn't even a big deal to him because of what he was dealing with. I mean, it people, didn't feel like a win, he yeah, said. Yeah, it, it didn't feel like mm-hmm. a win. Um, and, and so it just, that perspective is so important that, that there's, you know, there's, there's a lot more than just winning an election, that you've got you've to <clears> work <throat> and, and grapple with what you're dealing with within before you can, can be I, a help to anyone else. Can I ask, a, yeah, uh, Congressman, it, the right-wing attitude towards people like Senator Fetterman, did that not help him? I mean, look at the Donald Trump endorsement of Dr. Oz and their approach to him. Don't you think the Pennsylvanians that voted for him galvanized around him? You know, I think, it, I think it's hard to say. I, I certainly don't think it, it harmed him. I, I remember speaking to a lot of Democrats, including my aunt who lives in Philadelphia, who was very concerned about the, the stroke aspect of it. Um, I don't know that the mental health crisis was as clear at the time of the election. No, no, but I just mean all of the nonsense. I'm just saying the health stuff, the the stroke, the misspeaking. I think the Pennsylvanians galvanize around him as a result. All I know is calling someone struggling with mental health a liability, no matter matter what scenario or situation, is exactly how you keep these conversations silenced. And stigmatized. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite of the way we should. I'm be even cleaning about it up. It. It's false. I'm even cleaning up what they're saying. Oh, I know they're right. ghouls. Yeah, I've no, seen it. I've seen it. It's all the, um, it's all the MAGA in nonsense. A, in a job yeah, situation, quickly, well, in a job situation, we usually look at if somebody is disabled and if it, they can cover for their job with reasonable accommodations. So in this case, they should really look at what his deficits are and whether those can be accounted for with reasonable accommodations. So in this case, we don't have enough information about what the deficits actually are. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, obviously, he's home now. He's out of the hospital, and he says he's heading back to Congress. Thank you all very much for that conversation. Okay, is college worth it? That's a question from Mike Rowe. Next. President Biden touting his administration's efforts to create more manufacturing jobs in the U.S. During a speech in Minnesota earlier today, Biden making it clear that despite the changing economy, all Americans should have a chance to succeed. You feel left out, left behind in an economy that's rapidly changing. I get it. I get it. But hear me well. We're going to leave no one behind. We're going to make sure all American workers with college degrees, without college degrees, are prepared to compete with anyone in the world in the next remainder of this century. Even with President Biden's push to prepare Americans for changing jobs, some industries like plumbing, building and electrical work are struggling to find workers. According to the online recruiting platform Handshake, the application rate for young people seeking those technical jobs dropped by almost 50 percent last year compared to 2020. 
Postings for jobs such as automotive technicians and equipment installers saw on average 10 applications each in 2020 compared to about five per posting in 2022. Joining me now, someone who knows a lot about all of this and has been talking about it for years, Mike Rowe, TV host and CEO of Mike Rowe Works Foundation. Mike, great to see you. It's been a while, Allison. Great to see you. It's been too long. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you tonight. So, Mike, look, would you say that the tide has, for the past decade, kind of turned towards college prep is the way to go? That's the message that kids in high school have gotten. You know, we've done away with shop class and that it's been to our detriment. I'd say in general, I agree with that. It's tough. It's kind of like looking at an electrocardiogram, right? It's it, it, it's up over here, it's down over here, and then it jumps back in this area. And the study you just cited is interesting. Um, I don't doubt it, but there, there are some others that indicate uh, really just the opposite. The Wall Street Journal just ran a piece that talked about college enrollments being down for the first time in ages and trade schools going up. So I think it kind of depends on where you want to look, but in a very general way, you hit the nail on the head. When we took shop class out of high school 40, 50 years ago, we started to send a series of messages that to the president's point wound up causing a lot of people to feel left behind. And it's not just a vocational question, it's what happens when you promote one form of education as the best path for the most people and use all the other alternative forms, apprenticeships and trade schools and so forth, as some kind of a vocational consolation prize. Stigmas and stereotypes and myths and misperceptions begin to form around those kinds of educations and around those kinds of jobs, and it just becomes a vicious cycle. And the next thing you know, we're where we are. 11 million open jobs, most of which don't require a four-year degree and $1.7 trillion in student loans on the books. It's just, it's not just a mismatch of skills. It's a skill gap, but it's also a will gap and it's a PR problem. It's a big conversation. And so, as you say, since some of those um, working class folks have felt left behind, maybe the tables are turning. I mean, I look at these um, statistics. This is the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the outlook um, for the next 10 years of the jobs that will be growing. Look at this, electricians, the growth by 7%, construction equipment operators, 5%, construction laborers and helpers, 4%. Now, that's basically the average of growth of all jobs, but still, they're not going away. Carpenters, no. now 2%. Only building inspectors are going down by 4%. I don't know why that is, but plumbers, pipe fitters, steam fitters, 2% growth. So they're keeping up with the rest of the economy, and maybe it's time to reconsider all of this. Look, if there was a silver lining to the lockdowns, and I think there were probably a few, uh, the country got a tap on the shoulder, right? And a reminder of what essential work was. You know, I work on TV shows that make a big deal about that. But all of a sudden, right, when you see the elect, it's not just about, oh, this company needs more electricians or these people could do better if they learned to trade. It suddenly became, well, how long do you want to wait for the electrician to come to your home or the plumber, right? Or the welder or the HVAC guy. And so people began to suddenly realize, hold on, it's not just the employer over here and the employee over there or labor and capital or union or non-union. 
we're all kind of in this together. And a healthy workforce is a workforce that values the skilled trades. I, I'll say, too, you know, the, the problem with those studies is that they do reflect a macro issue. But the opportunities that are buried in those facts, that's what's interesting. For the individual right now who wants to learn a trade, there are people falling over themselves to help pay for that, including me. My foundation gives away a couple million bucks a year in work ethic scholarships specifically for these kinds of jobs. We're overrun this year. It's just anecdotal, Allison, but I'm telling you, I've, I've been doing this for 15 years. And this year, we've seen more applications in a relatively short period of time than I've ever seen before. And I think it's because the country is beginning to wake up to the idea that maybe the definition we've given to a good job has been historically a bit too limiting. And in fact, you've put together a PSA about that scholarship program. So let's take a look at it. Some people say there's no opportunity for women in the trades. Those people never met Chloe Hudson. You entered a field that historically has been dominated by men, welding. My dad, he really instilled in me that there is absolutely nothing that I'm incapable of. The women in the 40s and 50s, they blazed that trail. And they did it with red lipstick. I'm not a female <laughs> welder. I'm not a welder. I'm not a tradeswoman. I'm just a welder. That's what I do for a living, and I love it. Apply for a work ethic scholarship today at microworks.org. Very cool, Mike. So what does everybody need to know about this? You need to know that Chloe Hudson's for real. She's one of 1,500 people we've assisted over the years. You need to know that she's making a healthy six-figure salary doing something that she absolutely loves. You need to know she was this close to signing on the dotted line to borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars to become a plastic surgeon and decided that there was another way to go. There's always another way to go. And the moral of the story is pick the way that makes the most sense for you, but make sure you get an honest look at all of the options that are out there. We got to get our thumb off the scale and we have to stop promoting one category of jobs at the expense of all the others. Mike, it's always great to check in with you. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Anytime. And I really appreciate you having me on. It, it means a lot. All right, so what do you think? Is college worth it? We're going to do a lightning round with our panel and find out what they say next. Okay, so is four-year college worth it? My panel is back. I don't know why I'm going to ask all of you Ivy League elites this question, <laughs> but you all went to very fancy schools, so you're all going to say yes, college is worth it, right, Congressman? Absolutely, it is. But what about what about what Mike Rowe was just telling us, that there's this deficit of, you know, people, kids who know how to do these um technical jobs, and it's to the detriment of the country. Well, look, many people who don't go to college have jobs like electrician, plumber, <clears throat> et cetera, that actually make more than many of my friends who graduated college, you know. But that doesn't mean that, like, college, that there's no role for college in our society. No, no it's not right? that, but it's just that, is it worth it? But, of course, you're, you're going to say yes, too. Much well, Harvard, well, Harvard on the break, I said, I said, Jews and Italians, you said, we have to go. Our mothers will kill us, right? You did say that. But I, did. But I, I think he's making a great point. And what is the great point is that 
we don't have to have a stigma if you didn't go to college and that there are technical skills that are needed in the society. That's you can have a point. very robust, very profitable life if okay. you don't go. You've only got t- two seconds. Go ahead. But if I didn't go, I would have been killed. Listen, I think mom. it depends. If you want to be an architect or an engineer, you got to go to college. Um, but what I think needs to change is the way we're doing college because life has changed so dramatically in the past 50 years with technology and college has not. And so I really think we need to sort Other of than adapt. getting more expensive. In yeah. two seconds. Yeah, it, it's all changed. It's a whole different ballgame. It's way more expensive now. State schools are great. Community schools are great. Votech schools are great. Yeah. It's not one size fits all. But we need Excellent. to lower the cost of attending all colleges, colleges. All colleges, all colleges. and universities. Absolutely. Amen. Okay, thank you all. Uh, all right, tomorrow Donald Trump will turn himself in to authorities. He and his team are huddling in Trump Tower tonight. My new panel is coming in to talk about all of this. You heard me, Scaramucci. A new panel is coming in now. Look at them. Here they are. Right there. So we've just learned that the Manhattan judge will allow five pool photographers to take still photos of Donald Trump's arraignment tomorrow. But no broadcast cameras will be allowed in the courtroom. Several media organizations, including CNN, had asked for permission to broadcast the proceedings, but that won't happen. The former president is in Trump Tower tonight in the midst of a massive security presence in New York City. Here with me on our panel, we have Vanity Fair's Molly Jong-Fast, former federal prosecutor Paul Krieger is here, former Senate candidate Joe Pinion, former Secret Service agent Jonathan Wackrow, and joining us is CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan, who, as far as we know, is not former anything. (laughs) Um, Okay, guys, great to have you all here. Uh, Jonathan, tell us about Secret Service and what, how they're preparing tonight and how they can possibly be everywhere and cover this unprecedented event tomorrow. Well, listen, the Secret Service tomorrow plays an interesting role. It's uh, not what we typically see them playing. They're not playing the lead role. The NYPD is the lead uh, organizing entity for the security operation tomorrow. The Secret Service is keenly focused only on Donald Trump, getting him safely from Trump Tower down to the courthouse, and then whether it's back to Trump Tower or to the airport, uh, safely and efficiently. But they're not taking that coordinating role. And there's a reason why here, Allison, because the Secret Service has to show that they are neutral in this, that they're not currying favor towards the former president, which, quite honestly, in the last administration they were accused of. They have to make sure that they are not showing favoritism towards him by asking for any special conditions uh, through, the, through the processing uh, uh, of uh, him tomorrow, but also that they're not uh, focused on the DA, that they're not siding any, uh, with anything that the DA wants to do. So tomorrow what you'll see is the Secret Service in a very unique role as just the protector, focused on uh, Donald Trump. And then should anything happen, deferring to the NYPD to deal with the perimeter, the city at large, they are in close coordination, but they are not the, the, uh, the main entity tomorrow. I thought it was very interesting because obviously nobody is above the law or nobody should be above the law. But some people, I think, do deserve special treatment. And that's what we're going to see tomorrow. He's not going to be handcuffed because this, he's a former president, number one, and the Secret Service is going to be around him. Yeah, but and also it's, it's a nonviolent crime tomorrow where he's escorted by armed Secret Service agents 24 hours a day. What is he going to do? Let's be a little bit pragmatic about how we're going to w- work through tomorrow. But all the rest of the processing will be the same. He will be fingerprinted just like everybody else. His pedigree information will be asked by an investigator just like everybody else that's processed through that location. The question is, does he get the mugshot or not? That We'll find that out tomorrow. But the condition of uh, having somebody handcuffed, most likely not. 
Okay, Donny, tell us what we should expect in terms of security because of extremists. So is there a sense that chatter has increased and that more threat, you know, that police are seeing more threats? Uh, We know that Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a big Donald Trump supporter, is coming to protest. And the uh, mayor of New York City called her out by name and told her to behave. Yeah, Alison. I mean, look, there have been fears that tomorrow would be a sort of January 6th style uh, event. Um, And what we're seeing online right now uh, does not indicate that that is going to happen. Uh, Of course, there are some qualifications there that I'll get to. uh, But what we have seen is there is a lot of outrage uh, online. There has been a kind of steady stream uh, of violent rhetoric, which we have seen, including threats uh, to um, the district attorney here, Alvin Bragg, um, and also, um, you know, just the, the general sort of outrage uh, but what we're not seeing, which we saw, you know, in the days and weeks leading up to January 6, was we're not seeing that kind of mobilization where people are talking about coming uh, to New York, where people are organizing uh, buses and flights, etc. Uh, despite, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene calling uh, people um, to New York City. Uh, senior law enforcement officials, people who are familiar with the planning uh, and also experts who track this online uh, are echoing that, that they're not seeing that kind of surge uh, in mobilization. I will point out, though, very importantly, and of course something that um, law enforcement will be wary of tomorrow, is that you know the sophisticated players in this game, uh, they are going to be uh, using encrypted private channels. They know now, especially after January 6th, that law enforcement, the media, and everybody else is, is keeping an eye on these public forums, so it is possible um, that that uh, organizing, organizing is happening in private channels. Sure, but don't you tell me that, that police and law enforcement can break into the encrypted mm-hmm. channels too, right? Jonathan could probably speak better. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, tell me that they are on top of that. Well, listen, uh, not to get into specifics, but law enforcement wants to make sure, from an intelligence standpoint, that they're staying one step ahead of everybody else. So the, the actual capabilities, I don't want to get into, but let's just say they have a very good understanding of what these groups are doing. But to Donnie's point, we did not see in the last 48 hours... Any, anybody, um, you know, mobilizing a call for action, a call for, you know, uh, violent protest, not, not First Amendment free speech protests, but violent protests leading into tomorrow other than, you know, one, one congresswoman. Um, Joe? What are you? What are your thoughts tonight? Uh, look, I think we have the finest law enforcement department on the planet, and then within that law enforcement department, we have some of the finest intelligence gathering on the planet. I mean, you look at the NYPD intelligence bureau; it is better than some nations. And so, I think at the end of the day, uh, yes, we all know that there's this cloud of January 6th that hangs over not just this day, but I would argue uh, the nation as a whole. When that time capsule is sealed, uh, those images will be in there. But I wouldn't call that a sophisticated day when you've got shamans and all types of nonsense. So let us not undermine uh, the real threat of what happened on that day. But I think that we do ourselves a disservice on this unprecedented day when we're trying to find some level of common ground uh, when we're seeing a pretty divisive action uh, to try to kind of allow that to have even more of an impact on how we view and talk about the day. Molly, your thoughts? I mean, they're not Democrats going to protest. I mean, I think this has a part, I think we have to remember, and Trump has encouraged them, a lot of these people have really been punished. You know, some of these people are still in jail from January 6th. So I do think, but there has been, I think Trump has really tried to make trouble, and Marjorie Taylor Greene too. And like, there's an opportunity here to just 
you know, get. I mean, I don't think he's he's had a lot of incendiatory language. She has, too. She's been tweeting up a storm, fighting with Alvin Bragg, fighting with, you know, the mayor. This is not their city. You know, this is our city and we want to keep it safe. So I do think that's really problematic. Um, Paul, um, former President Trump predicted death and destruction if uh, he were to be indicted. And then he just tweeted. Well, a few days ago, he tweeted this. The judge assigned to my witch hunt case, a case that has never been charged before, in all caps, hates me, um, which, you know, could obviously incite some feelings about that judge. Um, Of course, it's also not true that this has never been charged before. It's never been to a former president. That's true. However, as the New York Times reports, the false business records charge, which is what people expect with this, is the bread and butter of the district attorney's white-collar practice. Mr. Bragg took office in 2022. Since then, prosecutors have filed 117 (laughs) felony counts of that charge against 29 individuals and companies. That is not never charged before. Well, I think there's a distinction that's important to make. What we understand the charges are going to be are falsification of, of books and records in order to commit some kind of election or campaign finance fraud. Right? So that is unclear about how often that's been charged. The fact that falsifications of books and records are charged regularly, no surprise. But those are often misdemeanors. But this is the felony charges that have been filed, 117 felony charges. So it has to be connected to another crime, in right. other words. But here it's apparently going to be connected Perhaps. to a campaign finance fraud. That's crime, one of the speculations. Which makes it, yes. I think, unusual and maybe unprecedented. We'll find out. And what do you think about the way that President, former President Trump is talking about this in terms of the judge and the court and the protesters. Look, I don't think he's going to do himself any favors with a judge if he's from the get-go criticizing the judge in this way. But my assumption is that this judge is going to handle this as fairly as possible because he knows the eyes of the world are on him. Yeah, I think also to that point, the president does himself a disservice because I think the easiest way for him to try to get this resolved in a timely manner may have been to try to get some form of bench trial or have the judge just throw it out on the actual merits of the case. So, yeah, I don't think he's helping himself there, he but I do us think... all a disservice. He makes our city more dangerous. Well, look, I, I don't, I don't I mean, think that the act of simply saying that I don't agree with the persecution or the prosecution is something that inherently makes the city less safe. But he said there was going to be carnage. And she said this, that there are drugs drug addicts falling over the street. I mean, this is my city. I, I, I grew up here. I, I, it's I great. Think, I think you're, you're giving Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene a little bit too much credit. At the end of the day, people are talking about it through a political prism because as the polling shows, many, many people believe that this be um, motivated by politics. So I just think we can't excuse that. At the end of the day, this thing's going to be unsealed. This is going to play out. It is likely going to last longer than the presidential election. Uh, and I think, again, we're going to see how that impacts the politics itself. But I I think that we have to actually just be honest about the fact that there is a mixed bag here when it comes to people across the aisle saying this is not the strongest case that maybe should have been brought. I mean, it, it could not be the strongest case. That's certainly true. There are many other cases coming down the pike, right? I mean, this is not like a guy who never did anything wrong. I mean, there are many. I mean, in fact, one could say he's been using the presidency as a way to sort of stay, I, I, stave I, off I, other I, I think that is a theory that is only believed by many people who decided they didn't want Trump to be president of the United States before he ever came down that escalator. So I just think at the end of the day, we just have to let the facts lead where they may, talk about the actual merits of the case when we actually know exactly what they are. But I think, again, uh, the notion that people weren't going to talk about this politically, if that was the goal, Alvin Bragg should have never brought this case in the first place. Well, we will know 
soon enough. We will know tomorrow what the indictment says. Thank you all very much. The latest CNN poll finds a majority of Americans approve of the decision to indict Donald Trump. But even more think politics did play a role. So what does all of that mean for 2024? We'll talk about it. A new CNN poll shows the majority of Americans approve of former President Trump's indictment, 40 percent disapprove. My panel is back and Jay Michelson joins the conversation. Great to have you here. Okay, so let's look at these CNN polls. They're interesting. So in terms of how it breaks down by Democrats or independents or Republicans approve, disapprove of this indictment being leveled against Donald Trump, um, no surprise, 94 percent of Democrats approve of this. What's interesting uh, I think, is it 62% of independents approve, and then 21%, Joe, of Republicans approve of the indictment. That's interesting. Well, look, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, polls can only tell you so much. I think you cannot look at one poll, but maybe just the uh, actual aggregation of all the polls. You have this poll that says that most Americans agree. You have the Quinnipiac poll and the ABC polls that says most Americans do not agree. I always try to see what is the thread that runneth in between all of those polls. And the thing that does run it between all those polls is that most Americans believe this to be political. And so whether you believe that it is a witch hunt, as some have suggested, which I think is a bit far, or if you believe That's- that somehow uh, that it's just individuals who have maybe abused uh, the discretion here. I think either way, there's enough people there saying there's something here about this that doesn't quite feel right. Here's the, here's the poll on that, Molly, before I let you answer. Uh, is the Did politics play a role in the decision to indict Donald Trump? 76% of respondents say yes, 14% say no, 10% say not sure. Okay. I mean, again, it doesn't matter what the polling is, right? If you do a lot of crimes, that you know, the job is to then prosecute those crimes. I would say, and again, we don't know if he's done crimes yet. We just know that he certainly has been near things that look problematic. But, but I would just say um, the thing with with this is that if I were a Republican, I'd be real worried about all those independents who think this is a good idea because, like. The Republican base loves this guy and they are all in and he's raising money and they are, you know, but you're going to have to, in order to become president again, he would have to win over some of those swingy voters. And I just don't think that those people are going to be drawn in by those indictments. Look, I think I, I think to your point, again, they're going to try to hang the felony indictment around every single Republican up and down the ballot uh, come 2024. But ultimately, as you get closer to Election Day, it's going to be about the economy. It's going to be about the state of the world when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. It's going to be about a lot of issues that ultimately will not be tied to what Alvin Bragg decided to do tomorrow. Well, Paul, as a former prosecutor, what do you think about the claims that this is political? So, look, I, I know Alvin Bragg. I've worked with Alvin Bragg. I have a lot of respect for Alvin Bragg. I don't think he's a political person. But, look, we haven't seen the indictment. I think these polls you just referenced, people's views of this indictment and this whole prosecution are going to evolve, and they're going to evolve quickly after they see what the charges are, after they have a sense of what the proof is, and after they have a sense of what Donald Trump's going to put it forward as his defense. Jay, if this is political... Alvin Bragg has made a miscalculation because Donald Trump has raised millions of dollars from this. In other words, if it was politically designed to hurt Donald Trump, 
he's, it appears, strengthening his base, and he's raising millions of dollars. But I think the point, again, is some of those centrist voters who are not in the base and who I would think if I were, you know, sitting to my right or doing Republican strategy work, I'd be pretty concerned about when the base gets way ahead of the centrist kind of regular Republicans who used to run the party uh, and kind of runs away with this. But, you know, I'm finding the whole, I, I was thinking back to the Clinton impeachment a million years ago, and I suspect then the numbers were probably pretty similar. Uh, but as we've just said, you know, when, when the details come out, they may still track your priors. You may just still feel, may just be Republican Democrat, but there will be more detail here. And I think really this should be a somber moment, right? I have a lot of friends on the, on the left side of the spectrum who are doing a happy dance right now, and I don't think that's appropriate. Uh, if we, again, we don't really know what's in the, in the indictment yet, but it looks like these are, ser- these are potentially serious crimes. And this is a former president, and this is an incredibly divisive and political moment. And this should not be times to be inciting anger on the hard right or doing happy dances on the hard left. But Joe, what about my argument that if this was political, it doesn't seem to be working. It's only helping Donald Trump. Well, it only seems to be helping him if, to your point, uh, the goal is to actually somehow wound him with the primary. If the goal is to ensure that he's the nominee, I think Alvin Bragg may have just succeeded. So I think if you take a step back, part but, of but why... Isn't that good? To ensure that he's the nominee, isn't that what Donald Trump wants? In other words... If Alvin Bragg is doing this to politically injure Donald Trump, it's not working. Well, why did the Senate majority leader decide that they were going to spend millions of dollars in primaries to help nudge through people that were deemed MAGA nominees back in 2022? Well, I'm just I think about Alvin Bragg. Like, what, do, well, do you no, agree look, that I, this isn't hurting I, Donald I, Trump? I think that for whatever reason, Alvin Bragg thinks this is the right thing to do. I don't know him personally. I'll take many mutual friends at their word that he is a good man who thinks he's doing the right thing. I would simply note that part of the reason why you see the disproportionate outrage over this is because this is not a man who's out here doing the Oprah Winfrey, you get a felony, you get a felony, everyone gets a felony. He's not doing that. I think you see the rampant crime that we've seen all across New York City. And I think that, I don't think it is GOP talking about. But I just read to you, there were 117 felony charges in the past 15 months. you're, You're talking about is the charge, which, again, we don't know the, the full nature charge. of the charges, being brought forward uh, on a consistent basis? Yes, I'm and talking the about, yes. I'm talking about the... Well, we don't know. Um, I think the fact of the matter is that when you're looking at what are the issues with crime around New York City, part of the reason why Lee Zeldin had one of the best performances going all the way back to 1994 was because of the fact that there's concern for safety in this city. Right, and the fact that we have a DA I mean, that doesn't prioritize these issues, I think it uh, finds yeah, a lot but, of people... But first you were saying it was political. Go ahead, Molly. Sorry. This is just such a... GOP talking point, the guy is in trouble for paying off his mistress, the woman that he had an affair with, with his third, allegedly had an affair with uh, while he was married to his third wife. This is a this is about a politician. This is not about crime in New York. I mean, the the GOP talking point on here is so crazy. I don't think it's that crazy when you look at the fact that, again, Alvin Bragg, has failed in many ways as a DA. I think that's a perception that a lot of people across the political spectrum have shared. And I think that if you're looking at having the conversation about is this the best allocation of resources, I think there are a great number of people. That's a perception that's been egged on by, you know, a prominent news network and a whole sort of cheering squad saying that crime is up when actually crime is not up I mean, right. in 2022 or 2021. Crime is only down if you're looking at it through a 1990 okay. lens, not if you're looking at it from a 2021 that's to 2022. Okay. That's not accurate. I, the crime, crime, violent crime 
crime in New York City yeah. declined in 2022. There's not a claim that this Alvin Bragg is not one of these DAs who said, I'm just not going to prosecute anything. He, 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 had, he, he had a day pro- one memo that effectively said as much. But it I wasn't think, about violent It didn't crime. say as much. It said nonviolent crime and certain nonviolent drug but offenses. They, but they have chosen to prosecute many of the people who have walked into buildings with weapons for the purpose of the committing crimes as misdemeanors. So here's what I'm saying. I think Quickly. that there is a reality here that people don't want to accept, which is that, yes, there was a point in 2022 when sexual assault had been up 300%. There was a point in 2022 when shootings had been up 14%. That is, those are crimes. Those are victims. And I think that people look at that and see hypocrisy when he has come up with what appears by many, again, not just me, to be a novel legal theory. So here's the question. Does Trump never, ever, I mean, he just gets a pass for anything, no matter what? I don't think he should get a pass. He's clearly not getting a pass, but he hasn't, again, at this point. But you kind of do think he should get a pass. I think that there are many people who are attorneys, not me, who have said that this case to them doesn't seem like... Was not one of the strongest. I I hear you, Joe, that is true, but it wasn't (laughs) one of the strongest uh, of the ones that he is being investigated for. Paul, if you could just bring it home, because you are the person who knows Alvin Bragg and who has been a prosecutor. Look, I, I think it's a little premature now to assess whether this case is strong or weak, political or not. I think we will know a lot more tomorrow and we'll know a lot more as this case goes forward about the strength of it and the motivations behind it and the proof. I have to go, but I I am curious, just because you were here and you were at the SDNY, do you have a sense of why the SDNY didn't do this? I have no firsthand knowledge. All all I have is what I've read in in the papers, which is there's some concern about Michael Cohen not being fully forthcoming. And of course, there's the DOJ memo, which prohibits indicting a sitting president. Back when he was a sitting president. But, but now, as you see, the DA has done it after President Trump was out of office. And the SCNY could have done that as well, since Michael Cohen went to jail for this crime. They, they could have. If they thought the proof was there, they decided not to. Got it. Thank you all very much. Okay, up next, controversy on the court. LSU star Angel Reese aims a taunting gesture at Iowa basketball star Caitlin Clark. We're going to take a look at what really happened there. a turnaround for the ages. LSU has captured its very first national championship. That was the moment LSU became the NCAA women's national basketball champions. That was last night. But of course, there's controversy. Critics are blasting LSU star Angel Reese for a taunting gesture right there that she made at the end of the game to Iowa star Caitlin Clark. But Clark made a similar gesture earlier in the tournament. I'm back now with my panel. Also joining us is Kieran Mayo and CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan. Christine, I don't get the controversy. Isn't this what you do in sports <laughs> in games? Well, yes, especially when the women's game is this popular now. It is this physical. Title IX, 50 years old. Here's the birthday present for Title IX's 50th. You know, this game, uh, the ratings, more than 12 million people, more than 100% better than last year's. I mean, these are extraordinary numbers. Women's sports is here to say it's a tough game. And yes, uh, there's some trash talking and people have to uh, get over it. And I, and I, frankly, here we are, Allison, the men's game on another network is probably ending about now. And what are we doing more than 24 hours later? We're talking about the women's game. Talk about a wonderful development 
controversy is good, no matter what you think. And people are going to be talking about Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese for a long time. Okay, plot twist right there. I did not see you wrapping it up that way. I thought you were going to be like, and here we are talking about the controversy instead of their incredible, you know, skill. But you think it's good that we're still talking about this. Oh, totally. I mean, the, the skill is there. And we know that. I mean, my goodness, Caitlin Clark, the reason those ratings were so great is because of Caitlin Clark. I mean, that is a fact. Um, she's a singular athlete. The way she's had the 41 points twice in, you know, in a row. Uh, you have Magic Johnson and people like her, uh, people like him tweeting about her. Uh, you've got guys I know well who would never turn on women's sports who are going absolutely crazy about Caitlin Clark and the women's tournament. Uh, she had 30 points uh, yesterday. She, it wasn't her best outing. She was still the leading scorer in the game. Angel Reese and LSU won. But absolutely, as long as you're talking about it, as long as you're not ignoring it, Allison, as long as people care about it and are passionate and are out there on social media having arguments, um, I don't think arguments about racism um, is are good. But a national conversation about these issues, absolutely. And when it involves women athletes, that is success. Okay, so Karen, let me show you what Angel Reese said after people gave her grief for making this gesture. Sure. All year, I was critiqued about who I was. Nobody, I don't, yeah, yeah, the narrative, I don't fit the narrative. I don't fit in the box that y'all want me to be in. I'm too hood, I'm too ghetto. Y'all told me that all year. But when other people do it, y'all don't say nothing. So this was for the girls that look like me, that going, that's going to speak up on what they, they believe in. It's unapologetically you. Your thoughts on all of this? Um, Angel's a black girl at work. That's how it lays sometimes. Um, we don't always get a fair shake. It doesn't matter how talented one is. Clearly, Angel's an elite athlete. Um, but I want to use this moment, really, I think, to echo um, what was just said, women's basketball is leading the basketball conversation. And um, Angel is a big part of that. You know, where she's from and where people play basketball for real in the hood, the hood that she's referring to, talking crap is part of the game. So I don't think that any additional attention on her because of that is really fair um, but I just think that she is in her moment. She, she said it herself, she's in her bag. And to be in one's bag, she's over this. We're talking about it. She's over it. She's celebrating. She's popping bottles. She's living her best life right now. And I'm, I'm here for that. All your thoughts? Well, I, I'm here for it too, man. I mean, I just, you know, for the little girls who look like me, I'm in and sound like me. You can have it. You know, this is what we're, this is the goal of, you know, what we're all trying to do here. Yeah. So, yeah, I was really moved. I'm scared of trash talk. That's why I'm not an athlete. That's nothing to do, nothing to do Joe, with my skill. Okay? I just am scared of it. Look, I, I think at the end of the day, there's a deep history here, which is why I think there were so many people, maybe she's in her bag, but there are some people that were troubled by it, and they should be. Uh, I mean, this goes all the way back to when we had the first women's HSBC uh, U team that went to the Final Four, only to be left off of the T-shirt. Three teams on the T-shirt for a Final Four. Uh, this goes all the way back to when we had uh, black women, uh, young women referred to as nappy-headed, you know what, uh, by Don Imus famously. So I think, again, there is a long history here that what is different here, right? If the actions are the 
the same, then what has deemed that person a threat? When has it gone from competition I mean, to like, them bleeding Guys over? teams do trash talking all the time and just well, like think this, it's, right? It's, I, I think we do ourselves a disservice to shrink it down to the size of a mustard seed. What Mm -hmm. is the difference between somebody walking on a Dartmouth campus with a hoodie and somebody walking in South Florida with a hoodie on their way home with a package of Skittles? The only distinct difference between those two people is the color of their skin. And so I think if you translate that to what happened here with this young lady, just, again, reveling in the competition, going against somebody that will go down as one of the greatest ever, and they're going to walk away without the ring that was promised, I think think that to me, yes, we should be talking about women carrying the day. There are probably more people excited about that game than around the game that we're missing tonight. Certainly (laughs) I was. Uh, But I think, again, um, we'd be doing ourselves a disservice not to recognize the layers upon layers of pain and suffering that goes through this. Great point. Yeah, it's just a truly inspiring moment that also brought up sort of the beauty and the terror of the American experience. It's Mm -hmm. funny that all of this can happen in the context of of a basketball game. And yet it does. You know, this is where we have some of these recognitions, again, about what's beautiful and and what's tragic about our country's experience. Thank you all very much. We have to get to this because up next there's this sad legal battle (laughs) over a goat and the little girl who tried to save its life. We'll explain. (laughs) It's sad. A nine-year-old girl in California bonded after she was able to take care of a goat as part of a 4-H program. When her family tried to save the goat from being auctioned off at a county fair for slaughter, the Shasta District Fair got the police involved. Detectives allegedly drove more than 500 miles to capture the goat, which was then reportedly slaughtered. The girl's family is now suing Shasta County and District Fair officials. We reached out to them, but they're not commenting on the case. So I want to turn now to the attorney for the girl's family, Vanessa Shakib. She's co-founder of Advancing Law for Animals. Vanessa, thanks so much for being here. Can you just give us a little bit of a history? When when this nine-year-old girl, whose name we're not um, broadcasting, when she got this goat, what did she think the end result was going to be with this goat? Well, thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. This is truly a shocking story and a textbook example of government gone rogue. We have a nine-year-old who raised a little goat and absolutely fell in love with Cedar. And it wasn't until she got to that auction that she truly understood what would happen to him. And because Cedar was her property, before the auction and at the auction, and because she had an absolute statutory right to walk and disaffirm that contract, there was no problem, legally speaking, with her leaving. And what happened next was absolutely outrageous. Okay, so let's talk about that. Her mother basically wrote a letter to the fair officials and said, um, my daughter's actually had a very hard year. She lost three of her grandparents. We'd like to not have the goat Uh, Well, I'll I'll actually read it here. Our daughter (laughs) lost three grandparents within the last year, and our family has had so much heartbreak and sadness that I couldn't bear the thought of the following weeks of sadness after the slaughter of her first livestock animal. So they were basically asking, you know, for leniency for this goat. And then what happened? What happened next is truly abhorrent. As I've said, the little girl owned Cedar, and she had a statutory right to leave this fair But the officials here transformed what at best was a simple property dispute into a criminal circus. 
and sheriffs here got a warrant authorizing them to breach entryways to go get a little girl's beloved pet goat. This is absolutely a gross miscarriage of justice and a failure of priorities. So somehow police drove something like 500 miles looking for this goat. They thought it was at one, um, you know, sort of retreat. It wasn't. They had to drive back and they found the goat and it was reportedly killed. So now the lawsuit, what's the crime here? What are you suing for? We have a laundry list of crimes here. Going through the Constitution, we have claims for violations of the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment. We're alleging viewpoint discrimination, an unlawful search and seizure, a violation of this little girl's due process rights, as well as intentional infliction of emotional distress. Because the bottom line is here, these officials knew of the property dispute, and in fact, my clients owned this goat, and they went with a warrant drove 500 miles, crossed several county lines to take this goat, and instead of abiding by the law and holding Caesar until this issue was adjudicated, they turned him over for slaughter. They improperly acted as judge, jury, and executioner, and that is not the role of the sheriffs. Here is what the Shasta District Fair CEO said about why they would not allow this nine-year-old to keep the Um, goat from being slaughtered. They said, making an exception for you will only teach our youth that they do not have to abide by the rules that are set up for all participants. Also, in this era of social media, this has been a negative experience for the fairgrounds, as this has been all over Facebook and Instagram. So that was their rationale for not giving her, um, you know, any any uh, sympathy on that. So how's she doing, Vanessa? How's the little girl doing? As we can all imagine, she's absolutely devastated and traumatized. We are a nation of pet lovers. Many of us have pets at home. We have dogs and cats that we know and love and that we consider members of our family. This little girl lost a member of her family, and she is absolutely heartbroken. Vanessa Shakib, thank you very much. Please keep us posted on what happens here. And my panel is back with me now. Um, Molly, wasn't this the plot of Charlotte's Web? This was exactly how Charlotte's Web went when Fern <laughs> fell in love with Wilbur. But she was able to keep Wilbur, remember? And we all love that we book. Were and so it. we were very happy about that. And luck, and this went in the opposite horrible direction. I don't think this is the best use of the police's resources. I mean, driving 500 miles and going and executing a search warrant for a little goat. I mean, I think this is wrong. And by the way, the fairgrounds really come off looking terrible, right? That On was Instagram, all over no Instagram. <laughs> this is not good for their social. I mean, really, like That's these the are people. These are children. Like, <laughs> I don't care about your brand. This is a child. But I mean, what they say, Jay, because I know you you blame me when I try to defend them. What they You're say, they thank you. That's what you've been telling me during the commercial break. Is that this was the setup. You were going to they, this part of the learning experience was you were going to see how you care for a goat and the food process. The food pyramid is you care for this goat. This goat is then slaughtered to be turned into meat for people's barbecue. Allison, this and is, that was this the is process the that you were going to be learning. Right? The quality of mercy <laughs> is not strained. Spare the goat. Right. I, this is just feels like this bizarre. There definitely feels like there's something we don't yet know about this case. And I'm curious, you know, look, we spent two weeks with Gwyneth Paltrow's 
gay trial. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> you know, the purloined goat, the sort of George Romero version of Charlotte's Web is going to be the next thing to capture America's interest. All right. Or not. Yeah. I mean, look, there's so much here. First of all, if you have a pet that you love, hire that woman. Second of all... <laughs> <laughs> Because that was amazing. I mean, we have everything here. We have big government overreach. Big government has gone rogue. I'll simply remind people that uh, Senator Rand Paul has a no-knock warrant uh, proposition sitting in the Senate collecting dust. Call Chuck Schumer. Ask him to get it passed. Um, I just think at the end of the day, there is so much that we can dig into here because that goat should still be alive today. And were it not for big government... That girl would the have the Shasta Fair is now big government. Yes. This is clearly this is, these guys, these, whoever these sheriffs are, and the and the fairgrounds who are upset about how it looks on Facebook. This is this is the Law and Order Caucus. These these children need to learn a lesson. You're gonna kill your goat. You're gonna kill your goat. This isn't John Wayne. What is, who's, this, who's tax yeah, dollars? Who's tax dollars? Who paid for these cops in the overtime yeah. and the and like the gas? Yeah. Five hundred miles. And why did we that give the goat a car. name? Why did the goat get a name? <laughs> great point. If you like it's problematic. That's such a great point. If you give a goat a name, that is not generally what goes to auction. Do all yes, slaughtered goats yes. have names? Yes. I don't like, think so. Yes. Okay, me neither. I have Sometimes. trouble. But Rand Paul, I think that that's called a pet. Let us not call Rand Paul the hero of this story. Let us just take a moment. No story. But they could be. I'm, I'm pretty be. sure the Legal Defense Fund for Animals has a, a pretty hard left view about like animal <laughs> rights also in the Constitution, so be careful who you kind of get into bed with. All um. right, all right, friends. I don't know how we got to Rand Paul from that strange story. Strange bedfellows. Yes, strange bedfellows, indeed. All right, thank you very much. Now listen to this story. Imagine going on 34 dates in 19 countries in just one year. A woman from Washington State did just that. Wait till you hear what she learned as a result. That's next. Talk about going to the ends of the earth to find a partner. A woman from Washington State says she went on 34 first dates in 19 countries over the past year. I'm back with the panel. Okay, uh, Kierna, I know you have strong feelings about this. Uh, The woman's name is Lonnie James. Um, We have a picture of her in various places around the world. She went to Jordan, Cyprus, Turkey, Switzerland, France, Italy, Slovenia, Norway, Iceland, the Azores, Morocco, Tunisia, the Mauritiana, Senegal, Gambia, Namibia, and South Africa. Wow. Okay, your thoughts? Well, I feel cynical, you know. Um, <laughs> it, it One, it reeks of a certain kind of privilege. Can we just go ahead and say that? Oh, because you're saying I who mean, paid for this Who paid for this? It's just, exactly. And True. it also, like, I don't, maybe it's because I'm a book editor, but it seems like a ploy for a book deal. Mm. It just seems mm. slightly disingenuous. The, the original premise, are you looking for love? Do you need to go to 100 countries? It just doesn't seem... I don't buy it. I, I think that's where I'm landing. That is interesting. How did she find the dates? Such a good point. But I mean, I, I guess on... And, 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 hinge. Hinge. Yeah, and are you looking... What, what's the end goal? I think it's just to have a story to tell and then to sit amongst the natives. That's the other piece that's not really being stated. But I feel like there is some white girl privilege here that um, is being used in a very awkward way. Molly? I also feel like if you're going on a date, you should be open to the date and not the, you know, not the five dates after that date. You know, there is a certain, like, lack of, 
you know, you should, if you're going to waste somebody's time, you want to really be open to possibly going out yeah. with so them. So you don't believe that she was actually looking for love. You think she was looking for an experience. And she is talking about looking for experiences here. I mean, she says here, as a younger woman, she saw dating as a means to an end to find a husband. Right. But now she considers it a privilege to hear someone's story and get to know them without the burden of expectations. I mean, <laughs> the burden of expectation, you mean like the second date? <laughs> like, what's the burden? What's the bur- She was having a good time. Just call it a good time trip, girl. Just call it a good time. <laughs> Eat, pray, yeah. love. Yeah, exactly. Like, she wants to have her adventures, but, you know, this is kind of catfishy if you don't say what you're really about. You know, if you're saying, oh, yeah. Like, and one of those meals, I read the story, you know, is, is she was, uh, she, I think, in Egypt and during Ramadan. And, you know, the iftar, the big meal, it's a big meal, right? That's like a big deal. Yeah. And so she, like, gets this whole thing and then, Leaves the country. I mean, if these guys and the, I didn't know it was Hinge actually, because yeah. right, that's mm-hmm. supposed to be a little more relationshipy. So she's kind of putting it out there that you know she's looking for something. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's doing a tour of the Middle East, North Africa. A girl's got to eat, Jay. Girl's got to eat. <laughs> it, this this whole I would agree. It's very eat, pray, book deal to me, and I just think that the undercurrents of that are saying, what, are you going to make some broad extrapolation about a whole type of people based on one date with one person on your way through town? It's just... It's not not No, no, no. Yeah. All right, well, um, Lonnie James is here. I'd like to bring... I will say, yeah. like, when, when I was a lot younger and did, In I was real passing, you know, <laughs> like, some of these conversations are great. Just be honest about what they are. Like, hey, I'm traveling through town. Like, let's sure. get dinner. And I, I loved that time in my life. And, you know, I look back on it and just don't make it into, yeah, either the yeah. book deal material. Yeah. Or say I'm looking for strangers. I just want to meet strangers. Yeah, just talking is okay. It doesn't have to be a date, Exactly. Right? It's, it's too much of a hook. Friends, thank you very thank much. You. Really entertaining. All right. Tomorrow morning... On CNN this morning, the team is going to be live from the Manhattan courthouse covering all the angles as Donald Trump turns himself in. We have special coverage. It begins at 5 a.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for watching tonight, everyone. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.